So let's read John chapter 4, verse 43, to chapter 5, verse 18. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was, who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, we finish our reading there. 
Children sometimes make up amazing stories to tell each other, don't they? Things that are not true, I mean. Uh, so, for example, one child says, um, truthfully enough, uh, oh, my, my dad just got a new car. It's a, it's a Ford Mondeo or something. And so another child, uh, hearing that, pipes up and says, oh, my dad just got a new car too. It's a Ferrari. Hmm. What do we think? Do we believe that? Um, 40-year-old father of three with middle-income job buys two-seater luxury sports car to sit on the driveway beside a seven-year-old Citroen? Maybe not. I think when your school friend tells you something like that, that the dad bought a Ferrari, you need to look for a little more evidence. You're going to want to see that Ferrari at school pickup time uh, someday. You're not going to believe it straight away. Um, There's a big theme running through John's gospel, and that's the theme of testimony. Someone's testimony is what they say. So, my dad just bought a Ferrari. That was the the testimony, probably false testimony, Uh, a lie, to use a different word. Uh, But testimony is something that you say that you want other people to believe. So, a witness in court will give testimony. Here's what I saw. Here's what you should believe happened. So, uh, remember as well, John 20, verses 30 and 31, John wrote his book about Jesus so that we might believe in Jesus, and by believing in Jesus, we'd have life in Jesus. Believe and have life. Uh, That's what this book is about. This is John's testimony about Jesus. It's everything he wants us to know and believe about Jesus. And the word testimony, the word, has uh, popped up six times already in John's gospel. Maybe you spotted it. For example, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist gives his testimony about Jesus. He tells people what's he, what he wants them to know and believe. In uh, chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that, that he, Jesus, is able to give testimony about heaven uh, and the kingdom of God and eternal life because he, Jesus, came from heaven. And so, he knows what he's talking about. He can give that testimony. Nicodemus ought to believe what Jesus has to say. And look back, uh, just turn back yourself to, to John chapter 4 and verse 39. Uh, this is our last time out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we, we covered this passage. Jesus is traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And he travels up through Samaria, a place where the people are kind of half Jewish, half worshipers of God. And he meets this woman and he knows everything about her whole life before they speak a word to one another. She goes to her townspeople and tells them about Jesus. In verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what did she say? He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. Now the Samaritans had all sorts of mixed up ideas about God and about the Savior God would send. But when Jesus came, they believed what this outcast woman said about him. And when they listened to Jesus himself and what he had to say, they believed him all the more. They believed Jesus because of his testimony, because of his words, because of what he said to them. Today, Jesus uh, finally reaches Jewish territory. He reaches Galilee, the region where he grew up. Then in chapter 5, he's back down in Jerusalem in the Jewish capital. Um, The Samaritans took Jesus at his word. 
They believed him because of what he said to them. They even called him the savior of the world. Well, how much more will Jesus be believed and welcomed by his own people, by the Jews, by God's true people? Let's see. Here's our first lesson. Uh, We should take Jesus at his word. We should take Jesus at his word. So verse 43, after those two days with the townspeople up in Samaria, uh, Jesus gets back on the road north to Galilee, and we're expecting great things, aren't we? Uh, Home turf, home advantage, this will be good. But verse 44, John just cools down our expectations a little bit and says Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Fact is, people listen uh, more easily to teachers from other places not teachers from their own patch. And so welcome again to those joining us from Coleraine Baptist. Uh, hope, you're, hope you're still with us. Even so, uh, verse 45, the people of Galilee welcomed Jesus. So that's good. Uh, but why? Verse 45, well, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. So it's not that they're excited to listen to Jesus, the teacher, They're excited to see Jesus, the miracle worker. They're probably even more excited to see Jesus go back up to Cana, uh, verse 46, where he turned the water into wine at a wedding. Uh, Even though Jesus seemed to do that a little bit off to the side at the wedding, a little bit out of sight, word has surely got around and there must have been quite a buzz. Anyway, they've all seen what he did in Jerusalem. And then this royal official, someone from the court of Herod Antipas, presumably, Uh, comes up to Cana from Capernaum. Uh, Now, you know I like a map. Um, So here's one from the ESV Study Bible published by Crossway. I have to mention publishers when we're on on YouTube. Capernaum is down there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Cana up in the hills to the west and the left-hand side as you look at it. Uh, Best part of 20 miles between Capernaum and Cana. And the official is uh, a father and his son is sick and dying. Now, that is a dreadful, dreadful thing. Uh, When a a child of yours is is ill, seriously ill, it's a thing that fills you with dread, like a a hollow, empty heaviness, hollow heaviness in in your chest. This man must have wanted to be at his son's side 24 hours a day, and yet he's so desperate, he makes a 35, 40-mile round trip to beg Jesus to help, to come and heal him. Uh, And the royal official says to Jesus, Sir, that come down before my child dies. And maybe Jesus can see the little crowd around him uh, in, in Cana there, fastening their sandals and just uh, tucking in their cloaks and getting ready for the speed walk down to Capernaum, ready to go see a miracle. Because Jesus says something strange and a little bit sharp in verse 48. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, Jesus is speaking to the official, Jesus told him, but he includes all you people within earshot. The people want to see miracles. And if there are no fireworks, if there's no show, well, then the audience will just dwindle and drift away. They won't believe in Jesus. They won't follow him. They won't listen and put their trust in the Savior of the world. They should take Jesus at his word. He speaks about heaven as the only one ever to have come from heaven. He speaks about life as the creator and author of life. They should take him at his word and trust him with their lives, but they don't. So what does Jesus do? Well, for one thing, he does heal the boy. 
Uh, Jesus might have been sharp with the people listening and reluctant to perform for them when they ought to be listening to his every word, but he does heal the boy. In verse 51, the official servants come running uh, and meet the guy on his way back. They meet him with the good news. The boy is miraculously recovered from this dangerous fever at exactly the time that the official spoke with Jesus. So Jesus heals the boy, but he does it in the least spectacular way imaginable. In fact, he does it invisibly. The only way that they can put together that it was Jesus is that it happened at the time. So all those people getting ready for a sprint down to Capernaum, they don't see a single thing. There's no showmanship, no buildup, no tension, no anticipation or sparks or clouds or flashing lights. Just a sentence. Verse 50, who knows if they even heard? Who knows if the people around Jesus listening to this conversation would even have heard Jesus say, you may go, your son will live. In fact, it's more direct than that, actually. It's go, your son will live. (laughs) What would you say to Jesus at that moment? (sighs) But, But won't you come? Won't you please come? My son is so ill. What does Jesus want from this official? Trust me. Take me at my word. Listen to me and believe in me and walk away. Go. Your son will live. And for fair play, verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. I bet that was tough. Walking away from Jesus, trusting him, the guy who's probably your son's only hope, setting off for home. But he took Jesus at his word and departed. He believed and he set off. And verse 53, when his family and his own servants realized that the boy recovered at exactly the time when Jesus, nearly, you know, 20 miles away, had said, your son will live, well, they all believe with him. They believe because of a miracle, although the official did take Jesus at his word. And that's what Jesus wants. That's what the people of Samaria did with the little that they understood of Jesus. And that's what we should do. We should take Jesus at his word. Is that what we are doing? If you've not yet turned and trusted in Jesus, what's stopping you? Uh, From your perspective, at least, what's stopping you? We don't get to see Jesus in action. uh, And some people complain, oh, it's, it's, it's hard to believe this old book. But lots of people who did see Jesus in action still wouldn't turn to him. It wasn't lack of evidence that was the problem, but lack of humility. Jesus will later say to doubting disciple Thomas at the end of this book, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John writes about these signs that Jesus performed, and he says there were many more, but but it's better to believe without signs. And believe on the basis of of Jesus' testimony. Jesus' words ring true. His words about you and me and about the world and about life and death and eternity. He speaks what's true. Paul says, uh, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Will you keep listening to Jesus in this book? Uh, This book of John. Will you weigh up his words? and his character, and his claims, and his identity, and his mission, and his death and resurrection. We should take Jesus at his word. 
or risk rejecting him altogether, or risk rejecting him altogether. If the reception Jesus gets in Galilee is a little bit disappointing, just wait till he gets back to Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews. Here, there are Jews with the best Bible knowledge. They should know all the Old Testament clues that would help them spot who Jesus truly is and why everyone should turn and trust in him. But the reception here is even worse. (laughs) Here, they don't just fail to take Jesus at his word. They reject him altogether. This uh, part, John tells us in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, happens sometime later. It might have been quite a while later, although Jesus was up and down to Jerusalem. Uh, we know Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee, and John himself tells us at the end of his book that he has left plenty out. Um, but he wants to show us, uh, I think, the Samaritans taking Jesus at his word versus the Galileans who want to see miracles before they believe versus the Jerusalem Jews who do see miracles and still won't believe. I think that's why we get these three episodes back to back. Uh, this, This whole episode is not so much about Jesus as it's about us. We are not neutrals waiting to be persuaded one way or the other. Is Jesus or isn't he? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll fall one side or other of that. We are against God, but we should take Jesus at his word and turn and trust in him. Anyway, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem near one of the gates. There's a pool of water, um, sheep gate. I get, I mean, it's hard to imagine it's for anything other than bringing a herd of sheep in and giving them all a drink. It's not exactly the kind of swimming pool that you want to get into, but we'll skip the archaeology, but it's about the swimming pool size. Uh, verse 3, lots of people with different disabilities and ailments used to lie around the edge of the pool, but why? Tradition says that from time to time an angel would, would stir the water and the first one into the pool after the water were, uh, waters were stirred would be cured. Uh, and verse 7 seems to back up that idea, what the guy says. Uh, and Jesus meets this invalid, someone paralyzed or lame or, or significantly weak, and he is desperate because time after time when the water is stirred, he's never quick enough to get in first. And he's desperate too because he's been paralyzed for 38 years. Imagine being unable to walk since 1983. That's 38 years ago, obviously. (laughs) Let me tell you how long ago was 1983. Margaret Thatcher won a general election landslide in the UK. Uh, Concord made its first visit to Dublin Airport. Uh, the first stretch, the first stretch of motorway in Ireland, in the whole of Ireland, was opened. Incidentally, an eight-kilometer bypass of Nace, <laughs> Nace County Kildare, just around the corner, uh, just up the road. And uh, one more, the racehorse Shergar was kidnapped from Ballymany Stud, also here in County Kildare, the centre of civilization, in 1983. 38 years is such a long time for this poor man waiting for this miracle cure, but he doesn't need a magic pool. He needs the Messiah, the king from God who gives these glimpses of the kingdom. It's a kingdom where where disability and frailty and failing bodies are made well and fit for eternity. It's a kingdom where illness has no place Jesus heals the man, again, not with a big show or or medical techniques or any of that, but just a command. So chapter 4, go, your son will live. Chapter 5, get up, pick up your mat and walk. (laughs) What would you say to Jesus uh, as as you look up at him from the floor where you live? (laughs) 
Don't be ridiculous, Jesus. My whole problem is that I can't walk. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Take Jesus at his word. Look down at your legs, at your feet, and now move them. Do it. Pull them up under you, and now push. Stand. Now pick up the mat and walk away. Leave this place. It's an astonishing miracle. I mean, muscles and bones that were weak and wasted, a brain that had no experience controlling his legs. You know, toddlers, you watch toddlers learning to walk, and it takes quite a while. Or people in, in major accidents or who, who, who have an amputation, they have to learn to walk again. Years of, of therapy and building strength and balance and confidence. 38 years this guy has been on the floor. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Trust me. Take me at my word. Go. It's astonishing. Uh, but this episode is not about the miracle, is it? It's about the reaction. So imagine you see a guy, imagine you go out of your house today, you go for your walk in your five-kilometer zone, and you see a guy uh, walking and skipping and jumping down the street with the biggest smile on his face because over his shoulder he's carrying his own wheelchair the chair you have always seen him in. He's carrying it over his shoulder. With strength that he did not have that morning, he is carrying his own wheelchair back to the hospital to hand it in because he doesn't need it anymore. <laughs> You'd want to skip and whoop and cheer and, and walk that journey with him. It's amazing. But verse 10, the Jerusalem Jews see this man and their reaction is, this is the Lord's day. You're not allowed to carry that wheelchair. Imagine that's, imagine that's your reaction. The only way a man paralyzed for 38 years is walking at all is the Lord's power in his life. You're not allowed to carry that mat. That's against God's law. Verse 11. But the man who healed me told me to. Verse 12. And who's that then? We need a word with him. The guy doesn't know who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus got away. <laughs> but, uh, but later the Jews learned that it was Jesus healing on the Sabbath, telling people to commit outrageous crimes like returning wheelchairs they don't need anymore. In verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Uh, now, for the record, God's law did not pro prohibit such an innocent activity as carrying your roll-up mattress on the Sabbath, but later Jewish traditions had invented hundreds of detailed and burdensome rules about the Sabbath. Um, maybe not with a bad intention. I mean, breaking the Sabbath was something that God had taken very seriously in Israel's history and, and held against them. So perhaps they, they, these traditions grew and grew as like a safety barrier. <laughs> Let's all step back from, from the line that God's, God has about the Sabbath. But but they're asking far too much. This man was breaking the traditions that legalistic Jews had added to God's law. And Jesus is implicated too, but he doesn't debate the traditions about what counts as work or what doesn't count as work. Instead, he says, yep, I'm working just like God my Father. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, my Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too I'm working. What's Jesus saying? God's my father. My father is God. I'm God's son. 
I'm that close with him, and he's always working, and so am I. Yes, God created uh, the, the world, and he, he rested on the seventh day, the Bible tells us, but as the Jewish rabbis themselves taught, God is continually upholding the universe. Uh, he does not leave the universe on autopilot one day a week. Uh, God is, is, is he symbolically rested from his work of creation, but he is upholding and sustaining the universe every second and every microsecond uh, of every day. God is always at his work, and so is Jesus, because he is God. He's not God the Father, but he is God the Son in the flesh. Jesus says, God works in his way on the Sabbath. I work in God's way on the Sabbath because I am equal to God the Father. The Jews certainly don't miss what Jesus is saying. Verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We'll see more of, of this conversation as it goes on next week. But in Samaria, uh, those semi-Jewish, semi-pagan religious outcasts took Jesus at his word and trusted him as the savior of the world. In Galilee, many Jews with a, a basic understanding of Scripture and the Messiah held back on trusting Jesus because they wanted the evidence of miracles. Now here in Jerusalem, the most educated, most religious, most Bible literate of all the Jews rejected Jesus altogether. They took issue with Jesus' signs and miracles. They refused to take him at his word. They rejected him outright because of who he claimed to be. And they even made it their serious aim to kill him. See, we should take Jesus at his word or risk rejecting him altogether. It's not really risk. <laughs> we should take Jesus at his word or end up rejecting him altogether. By God's grace, there is plenty of evidence to trust in Jesus. Uh, you know, there's great evidence for trusting the Bible. I, I enjoyed this little book, uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? Not even about the whole Bible, just, just the Gospels, a little thin, uh, thin book. Um, it was about 150 pages or so, uh, just about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, full of, of rigorous reasoning and evidence for reading the Gospels as reliable records, taking some of the techniques of, of history scholars, applying them to the Gospels and seeing what comes out. It's really interesting. And there's great, in, great evidence as well for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Uh, here's a little book, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. Well, how do you explain the empty tomb? Uh, some options in, in an even shorter book. What's this, about 70, uh, 70, 80 pages? Don't know, are there page numbers? Yes, they're in a different place, 70 pages. Uh, great evidence for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. How encouraging for us. Um, we can think about these things. We can be persuaded about them as the Lord opens our eyes to see and believe. But Here's a warning from John 5, don't dither. No one is spiritually neutral. We start off hostile to God and to his claim on us. No, no one is spiritually neutral and no one is spiritually stationary. Uh, we're either coming into the light or, or retreating deeper into the darkness. And by all means, weigh the evidence, you know, read the books or whatever you want to do. Weigh the words of Jesus. Read through John's gospel. But if you're weighing evidence, do watch out that you're not putting yourself in the position of judge and putting God in the dark. It's actually the other way around. When we read John's gospel, we're not weighing the evidence. The evidence is weighing us. 
the Jews of Galilee and Jerusalem show us that ultimately we either take Jesus at his word or we reject him altogether. And that's a disaster. Uh, and we're going to finish with this point, just a, a sort of half point to add on. We should take Jesus at his word or we'll end up rejecting him altogether when, in fact, we need him to save us. Just a few minutes on this. We need him to save us. Come back to verse 12 uh, with me. Uh, let's read from verse 12. So the Jews asked Jesus, who is this fellow? Oh, no, they didn't ask Jesus. They asked the, the, the paralyzed man now walking, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Well, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, ah, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Sometimes we hear of a particularly horrific accident, like a collision on the motorway or a, a train that comes off the rails. You might hear of people losing an arm or losing their legs. Um, soldiers returning from, from the theater of war with terrible injuries. And we wonder how people can carry on. Um, Life-changing disabilities, lifelong pain and discomfort that impacts on all aspects of everyday health and life. What could be worse than that? Jesus says there is something, uh, something worse than everything this poor man has experienced, something to do with sin. Talking in the temple courts, Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus is not saying that suffering comes directly from sin. Suffering can be a result of sin, and, but all suffering is a result of, of the universal rebellion of, of God of the world against God in Genesis 3. Um, but in chapter 9 of John, uh, Jesus will heal another man and state outright that his um, suffering had nothing to do with sin in his life. Um, all the same, he warns this man here that there is suffering that's worse than disability, worse than disease, suffering that comes from God's judgment, judgment that falls because of sin. The Jews in this episode have rejected Jesus, uh, rejected the Son of God, and we'll, we'll hear more uh, about that from Jesus in the rest of chapter 5 next week. We, but we need Jesus to save us from the consequences of our treason against God. Paul says the wages of sin is death. What we are owed for the shift of sin that we have put in in our lives is death, not just physical death, but separation from the, the kindness and generosity of God that we experience in this life, even as we reject him. Death ultimately means knowing the presence of God's wrath alone and nothing else of him. But Jesus does save us. Uh, we are faced with, with death, something worse spiritual death, something worse, worse than, than, than all the suffering of, of this man's life. But Jesus does save us. John 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We need Jesus to save us. 
look, there are many claims out there which are not true at all. And if my, if my kids ever tell you that I've bought a Ferrari, uh, look, it's a, it's a joke at best. Don't take them at their word. But do take Jesus at his word. Turn and trust in him. Take him at his word. Believe his testimony. He has come to give us life in him. And let's keep walking with him day by day, listening to him, listening at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words, letting him reveal his father and ours as he leads us home. Why don't we pray for his help? Father, thank you for John's gospel record of Jesus' life, uh, his signs, his words, his death, um, and his resurrection. Thank you for all the encouragement we have to put our trust in him. We pray that some listening today and, and encountering Jesus in John would, would indeed turn and trust him with their whole lives. And we pray that you would help us as his people to keep on listening to him, keep on reading your word, seeing Jesus in action, listening to him, learning through him, and following him each day. And we pray uh, with Christians through the ages, Almighty God, whose Son revealed in signs and miracles the wonder of your saving presence, renew your people with your heavenly grace, and in all our weakness, sustain us by your mighty power through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.